This episode forms a part of our YouTube series, where we interview the NGOs that have received a grant from Solidarity this year. Today, Alexa, our Executive Director, spoke to Michael from Mobile Info Team about the vital work that they're doing in Greece. Hello, my name is Lexi from Solidarity and I'm here today with Michael from Mobile Info Team. Hi Michael, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm very glad uh, to be uh, with you here today. Likewise, we're really happy to have you um, have you on this episode. So would you be happy just to tell us a little bit about MIT, your position within the team and what you guys do? So uh, I'm the co-founder and director of Mobile Info Team. Uh, Mobile Info Team now exists since uh, nearly five years. So in June, uh, we will have our five-year uh, anniversary. We are a team in uh, Thessaloniki that uh, provides information and individual assistance to asylum seekers and refugees, mainly in Greece, but sometimes in some cases also uh, in other European countries. Because one of the fields we, have, uh, foc- we are focusing on are family unification, and there also, uh, by nature, different countries are also involved. But our focus is the asylum seeker and refugee population uh, here in uh, in Greece. Amazing, thank you. Um, and could you tell a little bit about uh, the different types of services that you provide? Yes, so we have on the one hand uh, the general information provision, uh, which we are mainly doing through our website and through Facebook. So we are using Facebook a little bit in a different way than a lot of uh, other organizations do. So we are not using it to uh, promote our activities or show to the world what we are doing, but we are solely using it to provide information to asylum seekers and refugees uh, here in Greece. So we are posting roughly between one to two times uh, per week and uh, providing information about asylum procedure breaking uh, news about procedural changes. Now at the moment, we are also uh, posting a lot about COVID and related uh, COVID restrictions. Then we have also the individual uh, information provision. So this is also uh, partly done via uh, Facebook because uh, our followers or anybody else who uh, wishes to be in contact with us can uh, write us a message. And we are then uh, getting back to them as quickly as possible. So questions about uh, the asylum procedure, about family unification procedures, also about integrational procedures for uh, people that have already a status as a beneficiary of international protection uh, in Greece. And we have also a WhatsApp hotline where we are basically doing the same uh, as on Facebook so people can uh, reach out. Uh, with voice messages or text messages, and then we are trying to get back to them as quickly as possible. And then the last uh, service we are providing is um, individual assistance. Um, There we are going a little bit further than just with the information uh, inquiries. So if we have the possibility to positively influence um, a case, and if we have capacity, uh, then we will take it over and we will try to have... Uh, yeah, a positive uh, a positive influence. So this could, for example, be in family unification cases, 
uh, or also visa cases. Um, we have quite a lot of cases of uh, who are struggling to apply for asylum in Greece, where we're also trying to assist. Or something which is also coming up more are uh, subsequent applications. So people that have already been rejected for asylum but have new grounds why they could apply for asylum again. Or now also with the help of the uh, uh, Greek lawyer, we are now cooperating uh, with, um, we are also able to tackle some uh, detention cases. It's um, really amazing, not only what you do, but the breadth of what you do and um, your ability to reach such a large volume of people is um, unbelievably impactful and just very, very admirable, especially given the size of the team. You speak about how um, you need to provide a lot of information to, you know, 1100 people a month, basically, in a variety of languages. Is there a real... De- well, we know there's a real de- deficit in the information provision to asylum seekers and refugees within Greece. Can you just tell us a bit about um, kind of the issues that are faced in accessing information? Yes, I mean, so first of all, it must be said that uh, the asylum procedure or also other related procedures like uh, family unification procedure or also then procedures um, for beneficiaries of international protection, like, for example, getting a residence permit, getting social allowances, uh, getting travel documents, all of them are highly bureaucratic and quite complicated or very complicated. So even for people that uh, speak the language all those procedures are in, which is, uh, which is Greek or partly English here in Greece, uh, even for them, it's really a struggle to to get along and to find your way uh, through that. And imagine if you don't speak the language, if you speak Arabic, if you speak Farsi, if you speak Urdu, and uh, if you also don't, which 99.9% of the people uh, don't have, like, if you don't have a legal background, then it's extremely challenging to find uh, uh, to find your way through all of that, and uh, there is now also some uh, official information which is provided by the Greek state, but big parts of it are only in Greek. Some parts of it are in English, and a very very small portion of it is then also in other languages like Arabic, Farsi, Urdu, and so on. But also. The official information is still very technical, is often taking uh, certain things also not in account. And um, also, of course, if a state is providing information, they are not really seeing themselves as a service provider, but they are just, uh, uh, how to say, um, they're just doing their legal obligation to provide this information because they are obligated by law. So this is, we have a very different approach. So we are very centered on the rights of uh, uh, people that they understand what is going on and that they can make informed decisions about their life. And this is not necessarily what the information which the ministry uh, here in Greece of uh, asylum and immigration, what their uh, uh, incentive is when they are providing information online.
So the complexity of the information, the lack of uh, uh, detailed information, which is right-centered, uh, which is also independent, um, which makes it very important that a platform like the platform of Mobile Info Team uh, uh, exists. It's quite worrying how little information about what is a very nuanced and technical legal process is, is available for so many people. Um, and I think that's why we believe so much in the power of not only legal aid, but all of these surrounding and vital services surrounding information provision, translation and interpretation, because how can you access your rights if you're not able to receive information about about them? Um, but you spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that you've also done some taken on some cases with people in detention on the island of Kos. Is that something new that you've been doing? And can you tell us a bit about the situation there? There's a lot of uh, like media attention on uh, some of the Greek hotspots, some of the Greek islands like Lesbos, Chios and Samos, or Lesbos and, and Samos uh, have been a lot in the media and Chios also until a certain degree, because the situation there is really boring and really, really bad. But uh, the situation in Kos is as far as we can see from the reports that uh, reach us from there are not much better. And this is really a place which is so far in the, in the public eye and also uh, in Greek or international media completely uh, overlooked. So we have now already received since, I think in summer 2020, they started that people from the detention center in COS have uh, started to uh, to contact us. Um, there, a lot of Syrians uh, are detained. So Syrians that are either uh, in the asylum procedure or are already uh, rejected, finally rejected. Um, so this might, might sound weird because Syrians normally always uh, get a status, at least in Greece and also in a lot of other European countries. They at least get subsidiary protection or often also the highest status, refugee uh, status in Greece, normally too. But because of the EU-Turkey deal, um, there's a possibility, I will not go into the details because it's also quite technical and it's also very, very complex, but uh, just to simplify it a little bit, there's a possibility to send Syrians uh, back to Turkey when they apply for asylum in Greece under certain circumstances. And this has been happening in Kosovo. So I haven't seen a single case of a Syrian in Kosovo who has uh, uh, gotten an acceptance uh, since summer 2020. So all of them uh, sooner or later have been rejected and are then waiting to be deported back uh, to Turkey. So because uh, at the moment, because of the tensions between uh, Greece and Turkey, the political tensions, but also because of COVID, these deportations back to Turkey are not happening. And this was the reason why a lot of Syrians, also very vulnerable Syrians, uh, have been detained in the detention center in cause for a very long time. So for example, you have their uh, single mothers with health issues or who have been uh, uh, victims of violence, um, who have been detained for more than one year. And uh, this where we then had uh, the possibility to intervene 
uh, we said, okay, this is something where we really have to put uh, our focus on. Now we have objected um, against the detention decision of uh, three uh, cases. Uh, two of them uh, have been uh, released. So this was uh, the, the single mother uh, with uh, three children. They are now uh, in, in Athens and we are actually trying to assist them to apply on the mainland for asylum again to make a subsequent application there. This is quite complex because the Greek state would like to avoid that people that have gotten rejections on the islands and who should be deported back to Turkey are able to make another asylum application because it would circumvent the EU-Turkey uh, agreements. Because of that, we are facing a lot of... Um, how do you say, backlash from the Greek authorities who are not willing so far to register another subsequent application of, uh, of this family. But um, yeah, because of the vulnerability and uh, because the court has allowed them to leave the island, of course, and they are now in a different jurisdiction and not anymore under the jurisdiction where the EU-Turkey deal can be applied, we're still quite positive that at one point, um, after quite some fights, we might be able to also give this family another asylum claim, which then, if it's decided on the mainland, they will, as it looks so far, for sure get refugee status and then also get all the benefits which uh, come from being a recognized refugee. And the conditions also inside the detention center are also very worrying we had a lot of complaints that people with health issues haven't been brought to the hospital. And there has now been also an incident in the detention center in Kos where a man uh, died because the police didn't bring him to the, to the hospital and he didn't get the needed medical attention. So it wouldn't have been necessary for him to die if he would have been brought to the hospital. And it makes me so angry because the the whole concept of a detention centre is basically treating people who all they've done really is try to flee persecution as criminals. And that sends, in my opinion anyway, a very dangerous anti-refugee signalment to the wider population. And I think that in itself contributes to so many of the harmful stereotypes that we then have to come up against. Um, but also, as, as you kind of alluded to, these processes are just not straightforward. There's so many different agreements and regulations that exist within Europe um, as a whole, in addition to international law regarding refugees. Um, so for those of you who are less familiar, um, the EU-Turkey agreement, if I'm summarising this correctly, was um, basically the decision taken that anyone who was arriving effectively irregularly in Greece, having passed through Turkey, could be returned by Greece to Turkey and in return Europe had agreed to come together and receive Syrian refugees who had already been granted refugee status in Turkey. But what this means is that although, as, as Michael said, practically this isn't happening and it's leading to people being detained at kind of the border zones within Greece for extended amounts of time in really quite shocking conditions. So the more advocacy and strategic casework that can be done, the better, I think, in ending these practices. 
But the other thing that MIT have always really excelled at and specialism, we've known Solidarity and MIT have worked together for what, almost four years now. And um, MIT have always been really kind of well known in my mind as really at the forefront of family reunification. Um, so I was just wondering if you could tell a little bit about what family reunification is, why it's important, and also why it's not so straightforward. So there are two different possibilities uh, of doing uh, family reunification. So one is under the so-called uh, Dublin Regulation. Uh, the Dublin Regulation is in the end to determine uh, which state in Europe is responsible for examining an asylum application. This is not necessarily always the country where somebody arrives and makes the asylum application, but can, under certain criteria, be also different countries. And uh, one of these criteria, actually also the most important uh, criteria, at least of the, of the hierarchy of importance, is uh, family reunification. So if uh, core family members uh, of somebody, let's say somebody arrives to Greece, applies for asylum here, but he or she has already core family members in a different European uh, member state, then this European member state should become responsible for the asylum application of the person who has applied in Greece, and then the person should be transferred to this uh, member state. Of course, there's a certain uh, threshold of uh, evidence that there is uh, a family relationship. Um, and there's a process where then the authorities of both countries are involved. So the authorities of Greece need to make a so-called take charge request where they gather all the evidence and all the information about the case, send this then to, let's say, Germany or France or Sweden and then the authorities of this country will examine okay does this sound legit to us do we have any concerns do we have any doubts and then either accept uh, the take charge request or reject it and if the take charge request is uh, accepted then there should be in a certain time frame a transfer from Greece to this country to reunite uh, the family members this is in general at the moment a procedure which is not working very well unfortunately so we have had a lot of rejections um, from uh, countries like germany especially so germany has made a big shift from in 2016 95 percent of all family unification applications have been uh, accepted by germany and this has changed dramatically in 2017, where we are now at the acceptance rate from perhaps 35 to 40%. So this is a massive drop. This also means that as soon as a take charge request is sent, it needs to be waterproof, we say in German. I don't know if this makes sense in English. So it needs to be prepared in a very, very good way. And all the necessary documentation uh, needs already to be there. A lot of people don't have the uh, or didn't have the possibility to have like uh, legal assistance to gather all the necessary documents to already see what kind of problems might uh, occur to already arguments uh, against it and uh, yeah that's the reason why there have been a lot of uh, a lot of rejections unfortunately now there's also uh, another problem so 
for cases that are already uh, accepted, uh, as I said, the transfer needs normally to happen in a six months time frame, and uh, uh, Greece is responsible for facilitating the transfer if the applicant has applied for asylum in Greece and then another country has accepted him. Um, Greece has always done this, that uh, they have contracted a travel agency who would then facilitate the transfer, buy the tickets and everything. The contract with the old travel agency has uh, expired by the end of uh, 2020, so by the 31st of December 2020. And the call out the Greek authorities uh, had put out in November 2020 uh, didn't uh, came to a resolution until basically in March 2021. So there has been a time frame from the 1st of January 2021 until basically until beginning of April uh, where no uh, transfer could happen because Greece somehow wasn't able to contract uh, a travel agency. This has now led to a lot of people who have failed to be transferred inside the six months deadline. And it's very worrying now because we have to see if the other country will still accept a transfer after the six months deadline has expired, because normally the punishment, let's say, if the six months deadline is expired, that despite the acceptance, uh, the other country doesn't have to accept any transfer anymore. And then normally Greece, in our case, should be responsible for carrying out the asylum procedure. So this is extremely worrying because it might mean that a lot of families that should be reunited might, because of a bureaucratic error, not be able to be reunited. And there are, in the end, a lot of consequences for families if they are not reunited. I've had quite some reports from uh, family members in other countries, for example, husbands uh, in, in Germany that were waiting for their wives and children to be reunited to them where the family unification for whatever reason uh, didn't happen. And uh, this was quite catastrophic for the integration then of the person in, uh, in uh, Germany because they were mainly focused on getting their wife and their children uh, uh, to them uh, and they couldn't really focus on being in a new country, integrating, learning the language and everything. So it's a catastrophe for integrating, but it has also grave psychological consequences. A lot of people have experienced uh, trauma and hardship, war, and to be able to heal, you need a stable uh, environment, an environment which you can trust. And this is in 99% of the cases, the, your, your family, your wife, your parents, your children. And if this environment doesn't exist, it just adds further uh, hardship on already a strengthened uh, mental health. So because of that, it's also a very, very important point for mental health and for integration of uh, uh, asylum applicants or beneficiaries of international protection that a family unification uh, works and families are re reunited and together again. And I think what we're seeing even through this conversation is that so much of the time 
decisions that really affect people's lives come down to bureaucratic irregularities or very specific points and I think that just highlights how you cannot advocate for yourself without specialist guidance because these processes are so niche so complicated and really both of these examples that we've talked about both Dublin in terms of examining which country is supposed to take responsibility for a case and with the EU-Turkey deal it's actually once again and potentially I'm not sure if you agree with me but in my opinion international law seeking to control the movement of asylum seekers and in many cases to limit people's options to access their rights if you've fled everything really you wouldn't have done that were you not wanting to live in safety with your family and the fact that there are so many obstacles to all of these things does imply that the system has not really placed human rights front and center so uh advocacy in the form of about info teams work is perhaps more crucial now than ever now this is all very distressing to learn about and it's not it doesn't it's not a great picture the the asylum system in in greece or in europe at the moment but i was wondering if in your opinion you could talk about what you believe are some of the maybe long-term solutions or ideas and actions that make you hopeful oh this is difficult actually because at the moment i have the feeling there's not so much reason for hope at least in greece so every day or every week we are waiting for new decisions of the government that will make the life of asylum seekers and beneficiaries of international protection more difficult uh, or then also making the life of uh, civil society or people that would like to assist asylum seekers also uh more more challenging and more difficult on the long term perhaps there have been some decisions of uh, high courts in in europe from the european court of justice and also from uh, higher courts uh, in germany which were quite positive and which hopefully at one point also will have a positive effect on different uh, uh, procedures uh, also here in, uh, in Greece. But yeah, it's often also a long way until decisions which are made on the, on the highest European uh, court level then also come down and have an effect on everyday uh, asylum seekers or beneficiaries of international protection's lives. But still, it's positive to see that at least uh, the courts or some courts haven't forgotten about human rights and human rights uh, conventions and are trying to enforce them in a political climate where human rights are now uh, secondary or perhaps even lower uh, issue to be uh, concerned about and where other issues are much more on the on the forefront and just before we wrap up if there was one piece of advice that you could give to somebody who wanted to try and make change and to try and fight for refugee rights is there any advice that you'd give them so in the end I think a lot is possible if somebody uh, believes in something and is uh, uh, is persistent. 
was an idea. When I look back at the starts of uh, mobile info team and where we are now, I think, yeah, so much uh, has developed uh, over time, of course, because there was a need and because there were engaged and great people that uh, have volunteered for us or also really, really great support. We have received, like, for example, from Solidarity, where we at Mobile Info Team are also extremely grateful about the support we have received uh, now over, over multiple years. And uh, yeah, so looking at that, there's a great need. And if somebody really believes in something and has the energy and the time and the will to, to help, there's a lot, really a lot, which uh, can be done. And yeah, unfortunately, there's also really a lot uh, that needs to be done. That was so nice. And I really couldn't agree more. I think we really share that belief, just like there's a lot that can be done. You have got a lot of ability to enact positive change. So focus on what you can do um, that's positive. And, you know, I actually went to visit Michael about nine months ago now in Greece. And I asked the same question actually at the time. And I'd just taken on this role and I was just very aware that I had just haven't had as many years of experience, right? And I remember you saying to me at that point, um, everything you do counts. So think about that because if you take action that's poorly thought out or maybe harmful or hasn't been discussed with people who you're actually seeking to, to help, that will have ramifications just like doing good work will. Um, and that has stayed with me. So. I think if we could sum up MIT's work, it's both impactful, but also very considered as to how you can best make positive change. And yeah, we feel very lucky to have got to know you guys over the past few years. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between Alexa and Michael. If you'd like to know more about Mobile Info Team and the work they do, do check out our website for more links. And to see other interviews between our NGOs and our executive director, just head to our YouTube channel.